0: Add on top of that, if you want, little bits of meat, eggs, dairy, chicken, fish, nuts and oligol and keep away from processed packaged muck masquerading as food. You think about anything that you put in a box with all these emulsifiers and preservatives and trans fatty acids in a thickened, hardened state. When you swallow that stuff in your body, it does the same thing to the cells of your body. So a book I wrote about 24 years ago was called The Cell Factor and talking about how trans fats and processed carbohydrates are destroying our cells and as we know the cells are the unit of function in our body. Hey Gina, did you hear that Elton John took his pet rabbit to the gym? What? It's a yeah, it's a little fit bunny.
1: <laughs> oh Ross. Welcome to the Eat, Live and Move podcast by Miyagi, a space where we bring you the latest science-backed conversation, expert insights and practical tips relating to all things health and wellness and occasionally you will hear a joke from Dr. Ross. A I bri- am a brilliant doctor- joke, a brilliant, <laughs> a brilliant joke. A brilliant joke, of course. I'm Dr. Gina Cleo, your personal habit change expert.
0: And I'm Dr. Ross Walker, a professional comedian, cardiologist <laughs> and preventative health expert. <laughs>
1: And together with our 60 plus years of a collective experience, mostly thanks to Ross, we're on a mission to help you improve your health and transform your habits. So you can eat, live, and move better one episode at a time without the fluff or the fads. Now, Ross, we have heard you mention before on previous episodes, these five keys to optimal health. You've mentioned it a few times I think it's time that our listeners get a little bit of an insight about what these five keys to optimal health are. So I think we should dedicate today's conversation about that. How do you feel about that? I'm
0: absolutely, absolutely delighted. And can I make the point that I say to all my patients that their therapy goes by the 80-10-10 rule? 80% of their management are the five keys of being healthy. 10% 10% is the appropriate use of pharmaceutical drugs if they need them, and the other 10% is the appropriate use of evidence-based supplements. So the drugs and the supplements are time for another podcast. But let's now focus on the five keys, which to me is 80% of anyone's management and four times more powerful than anything a doctor, a naturopath or dietitian can do for your health. Gee, me, that's it's, a well, big call, so,
1: Ross. Big not call. so much dietitian
0: because they can, they're part of the five <laughs> keys, of course.
1: And you're so talking let's get, to a dietitian, can I just Yeah, I, I know uh, that. Uh,
0: well, one of the world's greatest dietitians, of course. Thank you, thank you. Well, well uh, we, we could probably say one of the best ones in the known universe. There, There is a dietitian oh, in Alpha Ross. Centauri who thinks he, he's better than you, but you're light years ahead of him. But anyhow.
1: I'd like to meet anyhow, him. Let's get, let's get serious.
0: Oh okay, so the five keys. And this is from the least oh. important to the most important. And at the end, I'll tell you how powerful these keys are in terms of reducing your risk for disease. So let's start. Number one is to get rid of all addictions. You cannot be healthy and smoke, drink too much alcohol, or use any illegal drugs. So let me start off with cigarette smoking. When you ask anybody, what's the commonest cause of drug-related deaths around the world, they say, oh, heroin, uh, crystal meth, cocaine, etc." nonsense. 80% of drug-related deaths are due to cigarette smoke. And let's bring in vaping here as well. It's just as bad for yeah. you, possibly even worse, the studies are now showing. Worse. So don't, don't think, True. oh, it's a better alternative for me to vape. No, it's not. You've got these it's things not. in your chest called your lungs, strangely designed for a thing called breathing, not to put a stick in your <laughs> mouth and suck the smoke or the vape in. It's just nonsense. So, so stop smoking. I don't care if you're a 25-year-old who can run a marathon and you smoke, you are ill because you're chronically poisoning yourself, number one. Number two, with alcohol, so this is all part of the quitting addictions, 17% drug-related deaths due to alcohol. So, look, if you enjoy a glass or two of red wine with a meal most days of the week, I call that being civilised. And the definition of an alcoholic is someone who drinks more than their doctor so they're
1: <laughs> the cardiologists especially the cardiologists, yes yeah, specifically,
0: <laughs> but people who have consistently more than two drinks per day are causing them, uh, themselves harm to some extent, and once you get to four drinks plus a day, the consequences of heavy drinking to the body it not only affects the liver, everyone thinks oh cirrhosis of the liver, but it 's the brain it 's the heart. It's the liver, it's the muscles, it's the nerves, it's an increased risk for cancer. Uh, too, too much grog is just poison and you should get away from it. And illegal drug is dreadful.
1: Yeah, and look, I, I find this fascinating because I grew up in Egypt in a country where alcohol is not really widely available, and it certainly is not part of our culture to drink. When we have our festivals and celebrations, alcohol is not a part of that. And then I moved to the West, to Australia, where alcohol is very much part of the culture here. And I think a lot of people will hear you say more than two drinks a day and think, well, that's a lot of people. I mean, do you see a lot of people that are like, oh, wow, I am drinking and don't realise it?
0: Absolutely. And see, a standard drink is about 125 mils of wine, one midi of beer, not a can or a schooner, that's 375 mils, that's a drink and a half, standard drink and a half, or a non-grandfather's nip of scotch, that's 30 mils, not a grandfather's nip. So they're standard drinks, (laughs) and many people having much more than that on a regular basis. Now, let me say, however, I also believe it depends on who the alcohol is hanging around with. So if you have a couple of glasses of wine with the people you love at a nice dinner and you're enjoying yourself, the alcohol is being combined with happy chemicals. But if you're drinking because you're lonely, because you're depressed, you're combining a toxic chemical with other toxic brain chemicals, not good. So, for example, if you look at all of the, the studies on alcohol from America where they combine alcohol with a crappy Western diet, There is absolutely zero benefit from drinking alcohol at all and and a probable detriment. Yeah. But when you go to the Mediterranean, where they're consuming a Mediterranean-style diet and combine that with a couple of glasses of wine per day, there is a couple of studies. There's one from I think, one called the Copenhagen Heart Study. 13,000 people followed for 12 years showed a 50% reduction in heart disease and cancer in people who had two standard glasses of red wine per day. And another study by a guy called Serge Renaud, guess where he came from, 36,000 Frenchmen studied for 12 years, same thing, 50% reduction in heart disease and cancer because they're combining a little bit of red wine with a good Mediterranean diet. Now, before we leave addictions, let's talk about, apart from phone addiction, which we spoke about in the last podcast, let's talk about the commonest addiction used around the world, which is a thing called coffee.
1: But wait, wait, wait. Before you move on to coffee, I have an alcohol question. Yeah, sure. You've talked about alcohol as a general. Is there a difference between, say, red wine and beer and spirits, or is alcohol alcohol? Is a standard drink a standard drink?
0: No, I don't think the evidence shows that if you combine red wine with good quality eating, there is a weak, and I stress the word, weak health benefit. So a 50% reduction in heart disease doesn't mean you go from having 100% down to 50%. It means if you start off with a 10 year risk of, say, of having a heart attack over 10 years, you might reduce that from 5% to 2.5%. That's a 50% reduction. For example, the Copenhagen Heart Study looked at people who had two standard beers a day two standard spirits a day so the two standard beers a day compared to the non-drinkers no benefit the two standard spirits per day compared to the non-drinkers 30% increased risk for heart disease and cancer in the people who had the spirits so
1: wow so the type of alcohol you consume does matter i think context- it does where you are, who you're around, how you're feeling, and the type of alcohol. So there's quite a few factors in that. Okay, let's say someone's having two glasses of wine and they're doing it with their family every night and, you know, it's all happy times. Is that okay, Ross?
0: Look, I think it's okay, but I I also think it's good to have at least one day a week off alcohol for one reason, and you're the habit expert, not me. The reason is if you have to have alcohol every day, you've got a problem. If you can have a day off and you don't miss it that much, you don't have much of a problem. So you're just consuming it to, with the way I consume it to enhance the flavour of food. But I, yeah, but I, okay. I can I can honestly tell you I have never been drunk, so I don't know what it's like to be wow, drunk. Never. No, even as a, no, I didn't start okay. drinking till I was 25, so I, I don't know what it's like to be drunk.
1: Well, I'm a two drink wonder. It's really not that hard for me to get drunk. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, that's and again, that's the thing. There are certain people that have very poor tolerance to the stuff, and which moves us on to the next topic within the addictions, which is coffee. Yeah. So, for example, many people, and I'm one of these, are slow metabolizers of caffeine. So, if I consume caffeine after four o'clock, I'm just staring at the ceiling all night. So, almost the hands on the ceiling. Buzzing. So, I have two weak coffees per day because of my sensitivity to caffeine. But I've got friends who can go for dinner and have a, a double shot latte before they go to bed and they sleep like a log. But Those that's certainly not me. blow
1: my mind. Do you know what's interesting? It's both my parents can do that, but I have a really low tolerance of caffeine. If I have coffee, even in the morning, I feel that anxious jitteriness for hours afterwards.
0: Yeah, well, you're a slow metabolizer. And so you say, but hang on, my parents aren't, and they created me. Yeah, but genetics doesn't work like that. Genetic, you see, it could have been that your mum and your dad had, uh, minor genes for two caffeine genes. and they 've yeah. just given you the, both, both those genes and see if but here 's the thing with coffee it 's a bit like red wine it 's all about the dose so if you have a couple of cups of coffee per day, you reduce your risk wait for this for gallstones kidney stones parkinson 's alzheimer 's many common cancers, type two diabetes, depression, and heart mm-hmm. failure just by doing that but Once you get up to five or more per day, then your rates of cardiovascular disease go up 20%. You, As you say, anxiety in many people, osteoporosis, there's a whole lot of things that can happen if you have too much. So with many things in life, as the Buddhists say, it's the middle path. It's all about the dose. So that's addictions number one. Let's move on to number two. Okay. Okay. Number two is good quality sleep. And we spoke about phone addictions before, and and we spoke about having electronics in the bedroom. The the bedroom's for two things. It's for sleeping and for that wonderful activity some of us get to do before sleep. And that's it. It's for nothing else. Get all electronics out of your bedroom. And you've got to try and cultivate a seven to eight hour sleep habit. Now, just by doing that, that's as good for you as not smoking. Wow, and a lot of people now huge. think it is. And a lot of people think, Oh, sleep's a bit of a waste of time. I cut back on my sleep. I can do more things. 95% of people need that seven to eight hours of sleep. There are occasional people you'll hear about like Margaret Thatcher or Winston Churchill or Leonardo da Vinci who only needed four hours sleep a day. Okay. Mm. They're the outliers. I'm talking about for most of us. Now, the studies show clearly that if you have less than six hours sleep, more than nine hours sleep per day, you have much higher rates of obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, common cancers. It's a bad thing. So you really have to cultivate that sleep habit. And just a, a few simple tips. So I won't go through the whole thing, but some simple tips are to go to bed at the same time at night wake up at the same time Most in the morning keep it yep. consistent sleep in a cool dark room get all those elect- degrees yep. Or, le- yep or less than that get all the electronics out of the bedroom and don't see don't if you're a people like you and I slow metabolizers of caffeine keep your caffeine in the morning and don't see alcohol as a sedative and there are many other things we can talk about we, we should do a whole podcast on oh, sleep great, that's sleep
1: okay one thing you said you said that Having more than nine hours can also increase your risk. I'm really curious about that because I, I can appreciate that, you know, not having enough sleep impacts our body in all the negative ways. Our hormones go out of whack. Our stress hormones go up. Our tolerance isn't so great. We're hungry. There's, there's all this cocktail of stuff that's not helpful for our body, not even mentioning our cognitive decline. But what happens when we sleep too much?
0: Yeah well see the interesting thing there is we don't know whether it's what we call reverse causality it could be something that's making you sleep too much so so what we're talking about is whether it is the fact that you are sleeping for so long because you've got another condition that predisposes you to all of those diseases so it could be because you're getting such bad sleep you could have bad sleep apnea you wake up and you think, oh, "I've got to have a few more hours sleep." So you're sleeping nine hours, but they're nine hours of bad quality sleep. So what I said, we need seven to eight hours of quality. good quality sleep. Okay. And how do you know you have good quality sleep? One question: When you wake up in the morning after that seven to eight hours sleep, do you feel refreshed or unrefreshed? If you're waking unrefreshed, yeah, well, you know, I if I, to have I have sleep even one out.
1: glass of wine before, say, say it's within three hours of going to bed. I will wake up in the morning and I do not feel refreshed. And that's because I know that alcohol does impact uh, the deep sleep and the REM sleep and all the good quality sleep. Do you think that's why I'm feeling like that? Yep,
0: because what alcohol does, it might get you off to sleep for some people, mm. but it completely fragments your normal sleep patterns. That's the problem with alcohol. So if people are having real problems sleeping, cut back on your grog.
1: Okay, all right. So that's point two. What's number three? You said that they're from least important to most important. Yeah, so this is so.
0: This is the third most important drug on the planet, in mm. my view, which is good nutrition. Now, you're you're a nutritionist. You're a dietitian. You're an absolute expert in this. You know more about it than I do. Uh, I've I've written seven health books. A lot of them focused around nutrition, my God. and can i say the the answers here very very simple mm. it's called eat less food eat more natural food that's all you need to know about nutrition
1: yeah just less processed food right essentially what's what's growing what's flying what's roaming what's swimming
0: we all eat more food in this society than we need it's true and and so and that's why most people are carrying more weight than they need to carry mm. so i say very simply cut back calories, cut back carbs, what I call white death, not all carbs but just refined carbs such as all the forms of sugar, white bread, pastas and and the Australian pasta because Australian wheat is different to Italian wheat, Hmm. Um, potatoes and and to a lesser extent rice. I'm not saying don't eat it. I'm saying a lot of it goes straight to the belly and that's where we get.
1: How is Australian wheat different to Italian wheat? Should we be buying Italian pasta?
0: Uh, Australian wheat's very hybridised has a huge amount of gluten, whereas the typically the durum wheat from Italy is is not hybridised and it has not much gluten at all. So, and this is what, Well, the problem with gluten is that many people are gluten sensitive. Even without having celiac disease, these people uh, they, they they get a good dose of gluten, they feel bloated, they have a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms, and and, and also. Um, with with all of this, I think there's a much bigger rise in the sugar levels, the insulin levels. So it's it's a, a, a big cascade of things, and and so these people get more abdominal obesity who eat Australian wheat. So I, I, I'm not saying don't eat it, but certainly move to the more whole grain, whole meal forms rather than having white bread. So so that's that, so that's part of nutrition, and. The the other thing is alcohol is a great thing to put on weight. So if you're struggling with your weight, look at your alcohol intake as well. And, and it's it's very straightforward to me. It, it's basically cutting back on your calories, number one, cutting back the carbs and the grog, but also looking at what is the diet that actually has an evidence base. So we hear so much about these fad diets, whether it's paleo, whether it's a, whether it's the keto diet. It doesn't, yeah, whatever it is. But the only diet that has an evidence base is the Mediterranean diet. There's nothing flash about the Mediterranean diet. It's not some esoteric diet that you can only eat if you're Italian. It's not at all like that. It's just basically having your two to three pieces of fruit every day, three to five servings of vegetables every day, and on top of that if you want little bits of meat, eggs, dairy, chicken, fish, nuts, and olive oil, and keep away from processed package muck masquerading as food. You think about anything that you put in a box with all these emulsifiers and preservatives and trans fatty acids in a thickened, hardened state, when you swallow that stuff in your body, it does the same thing to the cells of your body. So a book I wrote about 24 years ago was called The Cell Factor and talking about how trans fats and processed carbohydrates are destroying our cells uh, and, as we know, the cells are the unit of function in our body. So so that's nutrition. And to me, the, the tragic thing is that less than 10% of people in our society are having two or three pieces of fruit per day, three to five servings of vegetable servings, about a half a carrot. It's not a huge amount.
1: It's not. And you know, we can even add legumes into that, which is also part of the Mediterranean diet, isn't it? Chickpeas, hummus, everyone loves hummus. I could have a bath of hummus. I love it so much. Ross, what do you find with your patient's What are the most common barriers to eating well? Because I think a lot of people know what's healthy and what's not. We all know that processed food isn't good for us. We know that we should be eating two fruits and five vegetables. We know this this stuff. What do you find with your patients when they come to you and they're not doing that? What are the barriers?
0: So wait, wait till we get to number five because then we can bring it back to exactly what you've just asked me then. Number four, the second best drug on the planet. Three to five hours every week of moderate exertion, which I think should be two thirds cardio and a third resistance training and realize that what you and I are doing right at the moment, sitting on our backsides, sitting is the new smoking. And so people people have to get up and move as much as they can, but also have exercise on top of that. Now, we we should have a podcast on the blue zones, the areas around the world that have incredible longevity. But they've never heard of a gym. They just move all day. And they don't actually have exercise programs. But because they're moving all day, they live on the side of hills. They're going up steep hills. All of these things are so good for you. But we don't get that. We have these sedentary jobs in front of these damn things called computers, these flat screens that we spoke about in the, the last podcast. But we have all of these things, so it it sticks us to a chair, and so we're not getting that movement. So there's the whole 10,000 steps thing which has now been debunked. Get anything more than 5,000 steps every day, but also have exercise. As I said, two-thirds cardio, And and people say to me, Doc, what's the best form of exercise? Is it walking? No, it's not walking. It's not swimming. It's one you'll
1: keep doing. Exactly. That's what I say as well. It's the one you know you're going to keep doing. So you have to enjoy it. You have to enjoy the exercise. Otherwise, there's absolutely no point doing it.
0: And the real tragedy is that only 25% of the population have the three to five hours of exercise per week. And those who do just by doing that have a 30% reduction. In heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, 50% reduction in depression and in osteoporosis, drops your blood pressure, you sleep better. There is no pharmaceutical preparation known to man that comes anywhere near exercise. A study that was done recently showed that a large group of people, those who did, had that three to five hours of exercise per week, had a 40% reduction in all-cause death just by doing the exercise. And people say to me, people say, oh, Doc, I don't have time to exercise. Well, what would you prefer to do? Exercise for 45 minutes to an hour a day or be dead for 24 hours a day. And that's <laughs> the- Ross,
1: you're so frank, aren't you? <laughs> uh,
0: I'm not known for my subtlety. So, so I try to encourage everybody to have that really important exercise habit. It's something that's such an important part of my life. I have I played sport from the age of five to 52 destroyed my right knee so I had that replaced three years ago but but since then from 52 up to my age of 67 now I have broken three exercise bikes from overuse most people use the exercise bike as a clothes hoist
1: <laughs> that's true now what was the ratio that you said between cardio and something else remind me of that again. The cardio
0: and resistance training so resistance two, training. two, so two thirds yeah two two thirds of doing the cardio work the the, the walking swimming cycling, whatever you want to do, playing tennis, it doesn't matter what is sport. And the other third should be weights or Pilates, yoga, things that we get, stretching, resistance. Because, see, a lot of people don't realise this, that osteoporosis, everyone knows. If you said to someone, what's osteoporosis? Oh, weak bones. Everyone knows that. But a lot of people haven't heard about sarcopenia, which is weak muscles. Your muscles get weaker. Now, the muscles are so important because they support the bones. So you have weak bones, you also have weak muscles. So if you want to prevent osteoporosis, as I said, 50% reduction in osteoporosis with a combination of cardio and resistance training, you're giving yourself those strong muscles. And a a very interesting study that was uh, published a few years ago showed that the loss of independence in elderly people is 30% from cognitive decline from how the brain's working but 70% from loss of muscle mass, strength, and stability.
1: Wow, because it promotes falls, doesn't it, which is a real concern. Well, you see, that's the thing. As a
0: youngen, you fall over, but as an older person, you have a fall. And it's the same thing, but of course, when you have a fall as an older person, if you're osteoporotic or have weak muscles, you can break something. So you, you – And having a fracture, and that's the consequence of having osteoporosis, has a really bad prognosis. You fracture your hip, you fracture your spine. There's a very high mortality rate after that. So the whole theme of my career, 40 years of practicing medicine, one word, it's called prevention. And the things we're talking about today are all about prevention. So exercise is easily the second best drug on the planet.
1: And with that, Ross, when you said the the two-thirds of cardio... Does it have to be in a certain zone? You know, we hear about like zone two, exercise zone, zone three. Do you do you recommend one or the other? Or is it just move and get your heart rate up?
0: Yeah, no, no. You see, oh, that's a that's a brilliant question, which I I'd expect nothing less from you. But you see, the the whole point about that is, people get too technical. Oh, doctor, what heart rate should I get get up to? What zone should I be in? Nonsense. We don't have to get that technical. 220 minus your age is your predicted maximum heart rate. And once you get above 60 70% of that, that's when you're burning fat and getting cardiovascular fitness. But you don't even need to know about that. What you need to do when you're doing cardio, when am I tested by the exercise? When do I feel a bit short of breath without really puffing, but I'm a bit short of breath, I can still hold a conversation, but I'm just feeling the breathing a bit and I'm getting a bit hot. That's when you've hit perceived exertion. That's when you're above the threshold to start burning fat and getting cardiovascular fitness. So, Okay, so that's where we pe-
1: want to be as a minimum exactly. of zone two. But if you're in zone three, that's also absolutely fine.
0: Oh, it's, look, it's fine. The worst thing is not to exercise. Okay. And unfortunately, 75% of the population are not doing enough exercise mm. to get all the benefits we've just spoken about. But any exercise is better than none.
1: Yeah, and I think it's so important to find what you enjoy. And it goes back to what you said, Ross, walking's not the best. You know, the best form of exercise is the one that you'll do con- mm. consistently. And we know that we won't do something that we don't enjoy. So find whatever it is. If it's hula hooping, if it's dancing, if it's doesn't matter, just find what you love and do it consistently. Yeah? All right. I'm busting to hear number five
0: yeah, well, number <laughs> five, important. and I haven't forgotten the question you asked me. <laughs> okay. Number five is definitely the most important drug on the planet. It's a thing called happiness, peace, and contentment.
1: Now, right.
0: I'll get onto that in a second, but I'll now go back to the question you asked me What's the barrier to my patients not eating well, not doing the exercise? It's stress. Stress is the big killer. Now, in my view, stress causes no diseases at all, but it precipitates every disease. I have never seen one person in 40 years of practicing medicine had a heart attack, stent, bypass, who wasn't under some form of stress at the time. Wow. And there are five categories of stress, emotional stress, mental stress, physical stress, pharmacologic stress, Ooh. and infective stress. So all of those stressors can precipitate a vascular event, precipitate a cancer. So, for example, people say, oh, I was under enormous stress and I developed breast cancer. That was the cause. No. It takes one cancer cell nine years to become a two-centimetre tumour. Wow,
1: then six I didn't know that. For, Yeah, oh. then six
0: months for two centimetres to become two kilos worth of tumour. Tumour doubling time. It's exponential. But right. the, the stress made the cancer accelerate, and that's what I'm saying. So stress accelerates every disease. So to me, when I look at people who are unhappy, and there's often good reasons for it, I've had people ring my radio show when I've spoken about happiness and they say to me, yeah, but, Doc, how can I be happy? I've got multiple sclerosis. My daughter has severe autism and, and, and I'm in a wheelchair. How can I be happy? I get that. I totally get that. But I, I want to tell you a story about a man called Ken and a woman called Vera. And this is a story from my own practice. And Vera was in there with, with a, she had a significant blood pressure problem and I wanted to put her on a pill. And she said, she said to me, oh, doctor, you're the natural cardiologist. You should be able to just give me some herbs. I don't want to take these pharmaceutical pills. And Vera was just whinging and whinging and whinging about her blood pressure and about the fact that I didn't have some magic, like a magic wand that I could wave over and stop her blood pressure. <laughs> she needed a pill. And sitting in the waiting room was Ken. Now, Ken had every reason to complain about his life. Ken had had mm. bypass surgery, which is a huge deal. Ken also had a condition called muscular dystrophy where the muscles don't work as well, another huge deal. Yeah. And Ken also was clinically blind, and he, Ken would come in and sit down and sit in front of me and say, "Oh, Dr. Walker, it's such a privilege to be one of your patients." Aww. And, and he'd, ca- he'd catch a couple of trains and a bus to get to my practice, and Aww. he had this beautiful smile on his face. And he he used to get up every morning, get a bus into the city, and help the priest serve mass at a local church. And I said, Kim, why do you do this?" And he said, <laughs> "Oh, Dr. Walker, it's it's a privilege to be alive. You've got to you've got to yeah. contribute." And so what I wanted to do, I didn't we we'll say, Ken, could you come in here from it? I'd like you to meet Vera. <laughs> Vera, this is Ken.
1: He's Ken now has, your new life coach.
0: <laughs> Ken has every reason to complain. Yeah. But chooses not to.
1: Perspective, right?
0: Yeah, but you have no reason to complain, Vera, and constantly do so. Figure it out. So I mean, that's we all many people have stresses. I'm not demeaning them at all. Many people struggle with their lives, and I'm not demeaning that at all. But every every moment of the day is a decision how you react to your stress. Uh, Many, many years ago, a guy guy called Viktor Frankl wrote a lovely book called Man's Search for Meaning. And Viktor Frankl was tortured in a Nazi concentration camp for two years. But when he came out of the camp, he said, they could torture me, they could take away my freedom, but they could never take away my right to react to them how I chose. Powerful. So, So to me having there's internal happiness, which is a podcast all in itself, there's external happiness, another podcast. Mm -hmm. To give you one example there, there was a a study done at Harvard University called the Grant Study, an 80-year study that showed the one key to health and happiness is to have someone else in your life who loves and cares for you, who you love and care for. So the most selfish thing you can do for your health is to love your partner. And, and to me, that's much more important wow. than your da- damn cholesterol level or your blood pressure. Yeah. So I, I say in my professional talks all the time, so many people are climbing the ladder to success to find they're on the wrong wall. We've got to start getting on the right wall and, and see every day as a search for happiness, peace, and contentment. Make the right decisions in your life. And I say all the time in my professional talks and on radio, and I say this to my patients, Life isn't about making the big decision to be healthy, the big decision I'm going to f- follow those five keys. Life's about making 30, 40, 50 small decisions every day. Yeah. I won't eat that biscuit. I'll walk up the stairs rather than take the escalators. I won't yell at that fool who just cut in front of me in the traffic. So it's all the base- little
1: things that we don't think are important, but they are so significant yeah. in the long Con- run.
0: Confucius allegedly once said, a journey of a thousand steps begins with a single step. And you take those small steps every day. You walk up the stairs, and you don't look down and go, "Oh, there goes a kilo." But if you do that every day for Finally. six months, no, no. But if you do it every day for six months, you might start to see that the tummy's starting to, to go down, yeah. the waist circumference starting to be reduced. So, so, so just practice those small habits. You're the habit expert, not me.
1: How do you recommend people actually practice happiness? What do you have, I don't know, strategies? Is it about perspective change? Is it about stress reduction? You know, is, what, what do you actually tell them?
0: No, but I think we should have a podcast where we focus on this because it's such a long topic that it would be, be demeaning the subject by me just talking about it in, in a few seconds because it is a long subject and I think it's such an important subject that we should have one podcast talking about external happiness and then another one talking about internal happiness. I'm delighted to do so. I think it's a really important subject. Sounds
1: great. And I look forward to having that conversation with you, Ross. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode on Eat, Live and Move with Miyagi. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope that after today, you feel like you can apply these five keys to good health, to your life. And if you need support, well, that's what we're here for. Now, whatever platform you're listening to today, please hit subscribe so that you don't miss out when we drop a new episode. That's all from us. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week for more conversations with me, Gina, and my co-host, Dr. Ross Walker.